This week we're continuing our little two-part series on the word reconciliation. If you remember our message from last week, we talked about the disciples. Do you remember that message? And what a crazy bunch of men that actually was. We so often take it for granted uh, about who these people were, but if you remember, we, ha- we recognized that there were at least four violent nationalists or people that we would call terrorists amongst the disciples. They were zealots or they were uh, just from a part of, of, uh, of Jerusalem where it was known that many of the men were of extremist mindsets. You had a tax collector who was also a corrupt loan shark. You had a Galilee, many of them were Galileans. You had Judas, who was from Jericho, who he himself was a nationalist. It was truly a, not a team that you would put together if you're picking teams on the school playground. <laughs> that is not a team that you would choose that you would think would have good team chemistry. But we looked at the power of the gospel and the definition of the term reconciliation. It's not just the idea that there's people that are at odds with each other, they have conflict with one another. Reconciliation is much more than that. Reconciliation is being willing to give up parts of yourself in order to love someone for their benefit, not for your own. Love someone for them and not for you. And that's what had to take place in the lives of those disciples in order for them to work together, in order for them to be a team, and ultimately in order for them to be transformed. And that's what the power of living in the presence of Jesus did for them. They were transformed. They were willing to give up those extreme parts of themselves to allow Jesus to mold them and shape them and change them and remove the ideologies, remove the worldviews, the mindsets uh, that needed to be molded in order for them to get along. I mean, just think about it. You have, on one hand, violent nationalists who are fighting for the freedom of, of the Jews, And on the other hand, you have a man who's working for the Romans and also stealing money from people through tax collection and and loans. Remember we said Matthew, very likely, was the kind of guy who was getting a tax assessment for the Romans on a Jewish person, and then he would say, oh, your tax bill is a lot higher than even what the Romans quoted. They would quote much more than you could afford, And then they would loan you the money to pay your taxes and charge you a very high interest rate. We call that a corrupt loan shark. So in the same room, you have a man that was doing that, and you also have terrorists who are fighting for the freedom of Israel. It was truly, truly a wild bunch that Jesus molded and shaped and unified. And there's hope for all of us too, amen? There's hope for them, there's hope for us. He can do the same thing in us, and it's living in his presence, being willing to give up parts of ourselves in order for him to to change us and mold us that really makes the difference. And today we want to pick up that theme of reconciliation as well. And uh, we're going to look at the life of Abraham, because God, not only are we studying this in our Sabbath school lesson, but God taught Abraham the plan of salvation. He really wanted to instill that in Abraham because he was starting a people of faith that were to take this gospel to the world, this promise, this covenant to the world. And he wanted Abraham to understand it so he could teach it to his children. And in Genesis 15, we find a 
particularly grisly scene. Genesis chapter 15. And uh, if you'd like to follow along, I'll just kind of be referring to parts of it. We won't read through it at all. But uh, in Genesis 15, we see a particularly grisly theme. So Abraham has heard from God on several different occasions now that he's going to use Abraham, and Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. And as you saw in our children's video, Abraham and Sarah are like, well, really, we are really old and we have no children. How can we be the parents of, of many nations and many people? And God said, I'll keep my promise. I'll follow through on this. I'll make sure that this is done. And uh, in Genesis chapter 15, we see God confirming again his promise. He's, he's saying, yes, I'm going to follow through with this. And he even uses the, the, uh, the sign or the contract signing procedures that they used in those days. You see, in those days, what would happen is if you were entering into a contract or a covenant with someone, you would bring sacrificial animals to each other. And uh, as many things were back then, things were grisly at times, you would actually cut that animal in half, and half would be given to one side, and the other half would be given to the other side. And as that, the, the butchering was, was taking place, the two people that were entering into the contract with one another would walk down the center of the two sides of the animals, signifying that that contract was signed, and it's where we get the term cutting a deal from. You've heard that term before, we're going to cut a deal. Well, that's where that actually comes from. And uh, they're cutting a deal, they are, they're, they are confirming this deal. Now what's really interesting is after Abraham prepares these animals, it was the tradition, as I just said, that both parties that were participating in this contract would walk down the center of the two halves of the sacrificial animals. But in this case, something very powerful happened. As soon as Abraham is done preparing those animals, God puts him in a deep sleep. Remember that? I don't know, maybe it was because he was old and it was hard work and he was tired. I'm not sure. We, we took the kids to Universal this, year, this, this week uh, for a school trip. And Kelly and I, I walked over 10 miles, Kelly walked over 11 miles, and we were exhausted. I slept well that next day. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know, maybe Abraham's old and he, it was a lot of hard work, but he falls asleep nonetheless. And a deep sleep comes over Abraham, and Abraham sees something. Do you remember what he sees in this vision or in this dream? Oh, in Genesis chapter 15. Now, does, does God and he walk down through the middle of those uh, halves of those animals that Abraham had prepared? Is that what happens? No. In fact, what happens is that a torch or a flame walks or moves alone through the center of the two halves of those animals. Remember, we said in those days, the signing of the contract was both parties entering into that covenant would walk down the center of those sacrificial animals. But in this case, it's just the flame. And in that flame was the Lord. And what we find here is that God is saying, I am the one taking responsibility for the full contract here. Now, when we sign contracts, as you've heard me say before, as we sign contracts, uh, it's usually, you know, I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars for your property or your home and we sign off on it, and there's a closing, and I, I bring my money to the table, 
and you bring your property to the table. We both hold up our end of the bargain. What God is saying to Abraham here is he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to keep this promise to you, but you have to bring nothing to the table. You don't have any responsibility in this. All you have to do is trust in my promise. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And as we know, this is the entire plan of salvation. And the flame walks down through the two halves of the animal, and God is taking responsibility for the, for the full contract. And that's actually what separates the idea of a covenant from a contract. A contract is something that both parties bring something to offer. A covenant is a promise by a superior party to do something for an inferior party, for a lesser party. And that's what's taking place here. God is taking full responsibility for fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? It truly is, and it's, it's the gospel. God's saying, I'm taking responsibility. I will fulfill this promise to mankind, and mankind doesn't have to bring anything to offer, nothing to offer to this table. I will fulfill it. And that's what God taught Abraham through the birth of his son Isaac. Yes, Sarah was beyond childbearing age. Yes, the odds seem stacked against him that this could ever happen. But God performs a miracle. And as you saw in our children's video, the angels, maybe even the Lord himself in the form of the angel of the Lord, says to her, is anything impossible with God? Is anything impossible with God? And the answer, of course, is no. Nothing is impossible with God. And so God fulfills it. And little Isaac is born. And God... Uh, blesses him and blesses Abraham. And interesting enough, before Isaac was born, Abraham didn't quite put enough faith in the promise. Remember that? And that's why we have warfare in the city of Jerusalem to this day. The children of Ishmael, Hagar, Abraham's maiden or the, the helper of Sarah, he had a child with her. It was Sarah's bright idea, not a good idea. And Abraham went right along with it. They took matters into their own hands. Remember, the promise was, God will fulfill this by himself. You have to bring nothing to the table. But Abraham didn't believe it, did he? He took matters into his own hands. He thought he had to do something in order to make God's promise come to, to light or come to be. And unfortunately, it created a big mess. And it has lasted till this day. Isaac was the promised son, and Jesus through him. So now we see that this plan of salvation is full and free, and God fulfills that promise all by himself on our behalf. And what we see is that God did this through offering up Jesus, amen? And just as a, a, a small picture of humanity in Christ, and we looked at the disciples last week, but think about this. What did the disciples have to offer as Jesus was approaching Calvary's cross and the fulfillment of the gospel and, and, and 
the promise to Abraham. What did they have to offer? What did they bring to the table? Nothing. In fact, Jesus went through with the cross, went through with Calvary, and the disciples had completely abandoned him. Remember that? So Jesus went through with Calvary even though his closest friends turned their back on him. Humanity literally brought absolutely nothing to the fulfillment of the gospel, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God did it on his own. But yet, there is this aspect. So, so yes, God has, and you've heard this before, maybe from preachers, this legal aspect to the plan of salvation. In other words, taking sinners and declaring them righteous or declaring them justified, those big preacher terms. God did that on his own without any effort from mankind. We didn't bring anything to the table. In fact, just like the disciples, we turned our back on the Lord. So God on our behalf has legally declared us justified and righteous because of what Jesus has done. Amen? We didn't do anything to do that. But yet, just like we looked at last week with the disciples, there's a room full of people that are different from one another. And if you're honest, even though the Lord has declared us righteous and justified, we're different from Him, aren't we? And God wants to have a relationship with us, and we want to have a relationship with Him. And so reconciliation amongst the human family and reconciliation with us and God, even though He's determined and declared us justified and righteous, if we truly want to be reconciled with Him, or we want to have a complete and full relationship with Him, there's a lot we have to be willing to give up, or there's a lot of things that we have to be willing to him, for Him to change and learn from Him. Amen? Now, I'm not talking about the, the saved part. I'm not talking about the, the, uh, the legal determination of saved and lost, justified and righteous. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a full and complete relationship with the Lord, being one with Him. Isn't that what we all desire? And in order for that to happen, there's a lot of work to do. Wouldn't you agree? And God was, gonna, was about to show this to Abraham too. So Abraham had the, the vision of the animals and the, the separation of the animals and God walking down through the middle of that on his own. But Abraham had a lot more to learn in order to have a fully complete one relationship, at one relationship with the Lord. So what did the Lord do? Well, time passed and Isaac grew and he became a young man. And one day, and we find this in Genesis chapter 22, we find that the Lord asks Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son of promise, the one that they waited for, says, I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah, one of the mountains there, and I want you to, to sacrifice him. Now, can you imagine that? All the things that must have been running through Abraham's mind. Well, God never asks for human sacrifice. How, how, how is this promise going to be fulfilled if I don't have a son? If Lord, if you take my son from me, how can this promise be fulfilled? What will Sarah think? And we see in the story that Abraham doesn't even tell Sarah he's going to do it because I can only imagine that she probably would have tried to stop him. So there's so much here. 
Isaac is the one through whom God would keep his promise, and now God was asking for the life of that one? And I've often heard that what's about to happen here is the test of Abraham. Have you heard that before? The test of faith. But I want to ask you this question. Does that, I mean, even Scripture says that. Does that even really make sense that it's a test of Abraham? Let me paint the picture this way. Does God have to play games with us in order to know where our hearts are at? He doesn't, does He? God knows all things. God knows what we would do before we even do it. God knows the intents of our hearts. He knows the deepest things of our hearts. God doesn't have to play games with us in order to decide where our hearts are at. He doesn't have to play games with us in order to decide what kind of people we are. So if you're ever tempted to, to believe that, Lord, why, why are you putting me through this? Is this a test for me to prove something to you? That's not how God operates. God does not need to operate that way. This is a test of a different kind. This is a lesson for Abraham to learn more about reconciliation. And what God is about to teach him is who he really is. The full character of God on display. And that's how God works. God wants full reconciliation. God wants us to be at one with him, fully and completely. And the way that he does this is that the same way that he did with the disciples. Jesus lived with the disciples, didn't he? he his character was on full display. He showed them who he was, and ultimately when he hung on Calvary's cross. So God is about drawing us into perfect relationship with Him by revealing His character. Isn't that true? And this is, about what, this is about this test. This is what God is about to do in the life of Abraham. And let's pick up this story in Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. To take your son. Now I want you to, to, to listen carefully to some of this language in here. Take your son, and God emphasizes next what? Your only son. What, does that sound familiar to any of you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or his only begotten son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the son, the only son, is going to be sacrificed where? On a mountain. Does that sound familiar to you? Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you track the process of the crucifixion of Jesus, starts on Thursday night. Jesus was in Gethsemane on Thursday night. He was arrested on Thursday night. He was tried, on, tried and crucified Thursday night through Friday, died on Friday and laid in the tomb on Saturday. So this journey from where Abraham is all the way to Mount Moriah takes three days. Isn't that interesting? 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood. Listen to this. Abraham, the father, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up the hill. Just like Jesus carried the cross up the hill. He laid it on his son, and he, Abraham, took in his hand the fire and the knife. We're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. So they went, both of them, together. They went together, together. That's significant. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, where does Abraham get that? Where does he say, is he, is he lying to Isaac? <laughs> no, he's not lying to Isaac. He's not. What's interesting here is Abraham now is trusting in that promise that he saw in that vision, remember? Abraham took those animals and he laid those animals out, but the Lord alone walked down through the middle. God was taking upon himself the responsibility to make Abraham the father of many nations. He was, he was taking upon himself the responsibility to fulfill the promise to Abraham. And now we're at a point where that promise seems like it's going to be taken away, but God trusts in the word of the Lord. I will fulfill this. So one way or another, the Lord is going to provide the lamb. And he also has said, the boy and I are going to return. He doesn't know what the Lord's going to do, but he knows what the Lord has promised. And that's a lesson we can all learn, amen? We don't know what God is going to do to get us through this, but we know what the Lord has promised. There's a sermon in that, I think. There's songs we could sing about that, I think. And so, verse 6, laid it on his son. He took the knife and he went. And, and So where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide himself. And so they went, the, um, they went up the mountain together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, if you know how people were crucified, it's so powerful, the language that the Bible uses, because they would actually lay the cross down on the ground, and then the person that was crucified would have to lay on top of that cross, and then their the nails were driven in their hands and feet. The process would, and then they would lift up that cross and it would slam into place. And here, Isaac lays willingly down. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus laid down on top of that cross, was he laying down willingly, yes or no? Yeah, I mean, at any point, he can use his heavenly power to stop what's about to happen. He could have said, no, I'm not going through this at any point. He could have used his power. And, and here's the thing. It, it would have been justified. The wages of sin is death. We didn't deserve Christ going through with what he went through. And he could have used that power at any point, but he didn't. He chose not to. And here, Isaac is doing the same thing. 
Isaac is a young man. He's a teenager at least, and Abraham is old. He easily, once he saw what his father was doing, he easily could have overpowered this old man and run away. But Isaac lays willingly because he trusts the father. He lays down on that altar willingly because he trusts his father. Now verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God told them, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now this is significant. The language here in the original actually communicates the fact that Abraham actually has the knife ready to bring it down on his son to kill him. And it says, The angel of the Lord, who is probably Christ himself here, the angel of the Lord says, says Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now you know, I know that you fear God, seeing only you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, and they sacrificed the lamb and said, Isaac. So again, it sounds like God's playing games with Abraham, and what an awful game God would be playing here. To put him through that, that trauma, God doesn't play those kinds of games. I believe I know what's going on here. Remember, God wants full reconciliation with his people. He wants us to know him, and he wants, him, and he wants to know us fully and completely, completely. No barriers, nothing in between. Totally at one with us in mind and heart. And I believe what's happening here is that God is switching roles for a moment with Abraham. God the Father is switching roles. He's reversing roles with Abraham to reveal who he really is. What do I mean by that? Well, he says, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So in other words, God loves Abraham because he was willing to offer up his only son. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, right? So the fact that Abraham was willing to give up or sacrifice his only son made the father love Abraham. See, the roles are reversed. In this sense, Abraham becomes God the father and Isaac is God the son. And the fact that Abraham was willing to give up that son makes God fall in love with Abraham. Are you seeing this? The roles are reversed, and God has a very important reason why he's reversing the roles here. God wanted Abraham to know what he was going to go through as he offered up Jesus so that Abraham could know God's full heart. You following that, yes or no? God was completely revealing his character, his heart, his love, his, his fullness to Abraham. And the way that he did that was by switching roles with Abraham. God was putting Abraham in God's shoes. Knowing what it would feel like in order to offer up his only son as a sacrifice for this covenant. And he, he doesn't... <laughs> I mean, at any point, God could have stopped this. Isn't that true? I mean, 
as soon as Abraham said, okay, yeah, Lord, I'll do this, God could have said, okay, I know that this is true, and I know that you are going to follow through with it, so we're good. Could God have stopped it there? Sure. Could God have stopped it when he gathered the stuff to go, and he said, okay, let's get going. Could God have said, oh, right there, okay, yes, Abraham, I see that you were going to go through with this, so we don't have to go any farther. Could God have stopped it there? Sure. Could God have stopped it when they made their journey and they got and found the hill? Yeah, he could have stopped it there, but he doesn't. He could have stopped it when they, when they take the stuff before they carry it up the hill. He could have stopped it there, and God could have said, yeah, I see that you're going to go through with this, Abraham. Very good. Good job. Well done. He doesn't stop it there. He could, have wait, he could have stopped it as they were building the altar and binding Isaac's hands. They could have stopped it there. And Abraham could have, or God could have said of Abraham, yes, I see that you're going to go through with this. Very well. Good job. Well done. He waits until he's about to bring the knife down on Isaac so Abraham can know what it's like for God the Father to literally put his son to death for this covenant. He can know what it feels like. And it's not to put Abraham to shame. It's not to, to judge Abraham in any way. It's to, because God wants to be known and fully known by us. He wants Abraham to be fully reconciled to him. And God knows that if he reveals himself to mankind, he, he really makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself out there fully and completely hoping that people will respond when he reveals himself to us. Remember that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was on the cross, he's hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we often say that's because there was a separation between the father and the son. And I believe that's true. There was a separation but I want to submit to you today that it was not a physical separation. It wasn't necessarily just a physical separation. So it's not like the father was distant from the son and, and Jesus felt all alone. He did feel all alone, but it was more than that. You see, the Bible says that the father, Father God, made Jesus to be sin for us. He that knew no sin... He made him to be sin for us. And God the Father here is holy and righteous. Isn't that true? So what's taking place is that Jesus has become sin. When he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has become sin, and God the Father is holiness and perfect love and righteousness. Jesus is love and er, is lust and hate and, and death and and addiction, and sorrow, and pain. That's what Christ has become. And the Father is love, and peace, and goodness. And the, the, the presence of the Father feels like fire to Jesus. It feels like they are complete opposites. And what's happening here is the exact same thing that happens at the very end of time when God puts to death sin and sinners forever, those that have not received him. The, the presence of the Father, it's not that God hates these people. It's not that, not that he wants to see them die. It's just that they are opposites from what he is. 
And when He comes in His fullness and in His glory and, and reveals Himself as truly holy and truly righteous, those that have not received Him are opposites from what He is and His very presence consumes them. Are you following me, yes or no? And this is exactly what's happening with Jesus. It's not just that the Father feels, that the Father feels physically distant from Jesus. It's that when the Father does draw close to the Son, it feels like an all-consuming fire to Jesus. He's completely opposite from what the Father is. And of course, God couldn't communicate to Abraham what that was going to feel like. So that's why he takes the knife. He waits until Abraham has the knife in his hand and he's about to bring it down on his son. That's why he waits until that moment. Because he wants Abraham to know fully, as much as a human being could feel, what that's going to be like. God reveals himself fully and completely as much as he can to Abraham because he wants Abraham to be drawn into his presence. The way that God reconciles us to himself is by showing himself to us as fully as he possibly can day by day. Have we been paying attention? Day after day, God reveals himself to us. Now, if you know anything about what that's like, if you've, ever, if you've ever done that, maybe when you're dating your potential spouse or meeting a new person or coming to church, maybe you've joined a support group, you're opening up your heart and you're, you're, you're sharing your soul, you're bearing your soul, you've heard that term before. You know that that is a very risky, vulnerable, even scary experience. We as human beings walk around this earth with sort of a shell around us, a protective shell around us, don't we? We don't like to reveal those things. Because we fear rejection. We fear judgment. We fear that we won't be accepted. Now I want you to think about the God of the universe who made you and me. He is constantly, daily, completely exposing himself. And he doesn't force us to receive him and accept him. He's hoping that we will. He's hoping that we'll respond. He's hoping that we will receive him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The presence of the Father felt like an all-consuming fire to the Son. No wonder Jesus died of a broken heart. His Father, who he'd always been with throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity past, now felt like his enemy. The disciples who he loved and ministered to for years had turned their backs and abandoned. He was completely alone, and not just alone but everyone felt like they were against him. Even his heavenly father. Abraham learned a lot that day on Mount Moriah, didn't he? He learned a lot that day. I'm glad I've never been called on to do anything like that. <laughs> Can you say amen to that? 
And the reason for that is, is that God has revealed himself and his character in the person of Jesus Christ. He's shown himself to us through him. But also, you know something? He shows himself to us through one another too. And that's why he asks us to be reconciled to each other. Because he knows that through our relationships with one another, we know more about him. We need each other in order to grow closer to God. Did you know that? We're not called to do that on our own. We're called to do that as a family. Yes, there's a, a legal aspect to reconciliation. Taking what was unholy and unrighteous and unjustified and making them so. God did that on, our, on his own. But there's also a relational aspect. Knowing a person as they are known. God did everything, again, in order to make himself known by humanity. He has completely laid it all on the line, revealed himself fully and completely in the, in the plan of salvation. He did it with Abraham on Mount Moriah. He wants himself to be completely known. God had to make himself known for us to draw closer to him. And that is what he has done here for Abraham at that moment. Now here's the powerful part. Usually in order for us to be willing to open ourselves up, we have to feel safe. But in the moments of, of Jesus' most vulnerability, he's dying on a cross. He's, he, he literally is allowing himself to be hung there, and he's naked, and he's vulnerable. We usually have to feel safe in order to open up ourselves. And here is Jesus at his most unsafe point. Because the Father has turned his back on him. His friends have turned his back on him. And yet he still makes himself completely vulnerable on Calvary's cross so that mankind can know him. Fully fully vulnerable. And he took an incredible risk. An incredible risk. And here's the point for us. Full reconciliation takes risk. Reconciliation amongst one another. And not just those at conflict. Just knowing each other and loving each other takes risks. Amen? Just like those disciples... They had to be willing to give up things about themselves, things that made them feel safe and protected, things that, that, that kept them in their own idea of sense of identity. It, it kept them there. It felt safe. They had to be willing to step outside of what felt safe in order to have reconciliation with one another. It takes a risk. It takes surrender, being willing to give things up about ourselves. Reconciliation means being able to offer yourself to expose your true self even at the risk of being rejected. We have to be willing to show our true selves even at the risk of being rejected. It's a hard work, isn't it? That's a risky thing. That's a scary thing. And as humans, yes, we do need to feel some sense of safety, but the fact of the matter is, so often as Christians, we walk around this world and we have this false face on. 
In this world, we do it too. We're constantly hiding behind things. Hiding behind our persona. Hiding behind our, our, our feelings, our social media sort of uh, persona. Our, our, the characterization of ourselves we put out there for everybody to see. We're hiding behind those things. But if we ever truly want to be a family and united and reconciled to one another as Christians and in the body of Jesus, we have to be willing to take off the mask. Stop hiding behind our worldviews and our practices and our traditions. We have to be willing to take off the persona that has protected us for so long and truly gaze at Jesus and gaze at each other in love. Be vulnerable to one another. And that is a scary work. But it's the kind of work that transforms human beings into a powerful, united family that makes a difference in this world. Abraham learned a lot from the Lord, didn't he? A lot. And we can learn the same. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's what Scripture says. And the way our, our minds are renewed is by seeing God as he fully revealed himself to us in full vulnerability and seeing each other the same way. Are you willing to be a person who's willing to give up things about yourself, your culture, your background, your traditions? Are you willing to be the kind of person who's willing to receive people when they do take off their mask? That's what God did. He took off his mask. The expectations of society said, that's not who I am, this is really who I am. And he waited for mankind to receive him. So the question for us today is, are you the kind of person that if a brother or a sister takes off their mask and says, this is really who I am, are you willing to receive them? And are you the kind of person that's willing to take off that mask and say, this is who I am? That's a family. That's a community. That's Abraham's children. And it's complicated, and it's messy, but it's worth it. You willing to be that kind of person today? Let's pray. Father, uh, there's so many things that we arm ourselves with in this world. And as time goes on, we feel more vulnerable. We're more scared. There's more stresses around us, Lord, and we just want to ball up, and we want to defend ourselves and hide behind whatever persona we can make other people think is true. But Lord, you've shown us a different way. You continuously make yourself vulnerable. You put yourself out there. You reveal yourself in powerful ways, Lord. In, in very real ways. And you hope that we will respond by being reconciled with you and knowing you more deeply. So Lord, let us gaze upon you today. May we we soak it in. May we see you as you really are. May you change us and, and transform us. And also, Lord, may we be willing day by day, step by step, to, to give things up about ourselves. To not be so defensive. To not hide behind a mask. To not put out a, a public persona that just isn't true, that's not real. May we be willing to be our true selves. So that, Lord, people can know us as we really are. 
May we be willing to people, be people that are, are safe for other people to, to show us who they really are so that we can truly become a family and love them for their sake and not ours. Lord, it's complicated and it's messy, but it's what you did in the lives of the disciples. So Lord, may you do this work in us. May we see you through what Jesus has done and may we see you through one another. We thank you, Lord, for this work. We thank you for what you're doing in this church family. We pray in Jesus' name.